1 John 2, 12-14 I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen, dear saints, you may be seated. We are in chapter 2 of 1 John. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, as we look at this great chapter 2 of 1 John, we're amazed at the coordination between the classes, the education, Christian education, like our young people, and then up here out of 1 Peter 3 this morning, too, in the adult class. Remarkable coordination of your Holy Spirit with the Word of God written, the Word of God preached, the life of the church. We are one big, great family, Lord. Got a lot of heritage, a lot have gone before us, many to come after us. May we join this great clan with joy today in celebrating Jesus, the head of the family. And we pray in his name. Amen. It's totally understandable why we're entitling the sermon today, Letters to the Church Family, especially when we consider that the Apostle John employs these following four terms some six times in only the three verses of our text. Little children, fathers, young men, and children. God delights to view his church, Christ's church, as his own particular, special, beloved, and covenantal family. God has one family, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all the elect, redeemed members of the church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, no one else. Christ himself, as I mentioned, is the federal head of his own church, And he joined his church. He was the first one, in a sense, to do so, although others had been baptized. You can read about his baptism in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, when John the Baptist poured the water on his head, anointing him in his role as the Christ, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would then bring the gospel to the whole world. Since the redeemed church is the family of God, let us joyfully make it our goal this Sabbath day to love the God who loves his church all in Christ. We're looking at some great verses today. 1 John 2, 12-14. Title of the sermon, Letters to the Church Family. If you're new and you want to use the outline, we start right here. The doctrine, God addresses the members of his church family with fatherly love. Now, even if the Apostle John was not a truly old man when he wrote 1 John. In fact, the more I study this epistle and this series, I become more convinced he probably wasn't, especially with the verses that are going to follow, talking about the Antichrist and many Antichrists that would speak of a time before 70 AD. Even though he wasn't a, a gentlemanly old man, he certainly 
was a tender, magnificently warm, affectionate, and fatherly apostle and pastor in the way he puts all of his words to his beloved fellow Christian church members in this section of Holy Scripture. In this sense, John, the apostle, like all good pastors, ruling elders, deacons, and faithful church members, is imitating his own heavenly father, and we want to do that too. With joy, then, let us recognize that God addresses the members of his church family with fatherly love, first, which is meant to encourage us. Actually, virtually everything written by John in these three verses of our lesson today is encouraging. Here, there are no rebukes, no corrections, no commandments, no admonitions, although some of those will be forthcoming. But this is a specially gentle section of Holy Scripture. Have we ever considered, dear saints, how much we need good, solid, honest, and true encouragement? The truth is we need it a lot, and we need it every day, and we need it every Sunday, every Lord's Day, every New Covenant Sabbath day. We need a lot of encouragement. We really do. As a good, seasoned, and experienced pastor, the Apostle John gently addresses his parishioners with familial affection, sincere acknowledgement of what they had already achieved in Jesus, and confident assurance that what God had begun in his children, he the Lord will see to completion on the last day, the day of judgment. The church is not principally a legal corporation, and we made a note about that last Sunday. Instead, the church is first and foremost a living, spiritual, organic family made up of people who love God through the God-man, Jesus Christ the Lord, and through him also then love each other. But for this to work well, there must be a lot of supernatural cheering of our hearts by the Lord and through him, his spirit, each other as well. God addresses the members of his church family with fatherly love, which is meant to encourage us and which is meant to embolden us. Some of the things John the Apostle says in the litany of the verses of our text for today are almost outrageous, audacious, amazing. Incredible. In verses 12 and 14, the apostle actually tells the, quote, young men of the church, not once but twice, that they had, quote, overcome the evil one. That's saying a lot. You young men in the church, John says, have overcome the evil one. You know, that's true not only of them, but of all of us as well who are in Christ. And we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. Now, words like these are terms that are meant to further strengthen God's saints of his church so that we have more confidence in Christ to press on even more in our Christ-likeness and growth in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Lord's Day to Lord's Day. Now, the young men that John talks about really represents all the faithful Christian church members be they male or female, young or old, who are earnest in their faith and are growing in their love for and understanding of the triune God. Now, how do we know that, for instance? Because a lot of these things that John talks about with regard to the young men are found elsewhere in Scripture that apply to all the members of the church. Men, women, boys, girls, young, old, black, white, any other color you can imagine. 
So all the branches of the family tree we read about in verses 12 to 14 fit together, and the little children, quote-unquote, of verse 12, whose sins are forgiven, make the maturity, boldness, and courage of the, quote, fathers and young men possible. That's why verse 12 is really the key verse, because we are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, John 1.12. Well, let's look at the text, 1 John 2, 12-14, and be appreciative of the sweet messages God has for his church family. Now, not every text in Holy Scripture is like today, so there's especially enjoy it. Okay, I'm just saying, this one's pretty unique. Seriously, this is a particularly gentle section of God's holy book. And it is as if our Heavenly Father gathers his whole elect church family around him and embraces us with his kindly and generous affection. And therefore, as the forgiven and beloved congregation of the glorious Holy Trinity... Let us relish the sweet messages God has for his church family. He's got three of them, one for each verse. First, you are completely justified in Christ, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, this verse 12 covers everything and everybody in the family or true church, family of God. Actually, I'm going to try to convince you as I've already hinted, that all the appellations or names of, quote, little children, fathers, young men and children, although pointing out real distinctions in the family of God, the church, and they are, we're not ashamed of that, we're not afraid of that, we, we're totally fine with that. We're, we're into distinctions, we're into variety, we like that. That's biblical and we're fine and we're very happy about it. Nonetheless... That does not mean that all the saints are not capable of and have applied to them the characteristics that are attached to these four terms individually. After all, how how would we like it if just the little children in the church, if we took this literally, are the ones that have their sins forgiven and the rest of us are still floating around in perdition? We wouldn't like that. All of these apply to all of us. In other words, to explain... Are not all the regenerate people in Christ's church God's little children, verse 12? And do not all of us who are known by and loved by God in Jesus Christ have all our sins forgiven, as verse 12 so gloriously states? And the same can be said for all the other bold assertions John makes about all the other categories of the church family. For instance, is it not only possible but actually the case that many mothers or young women in the faithful church know the Father and are strong and have the word of God abiding in them and have overcome the evil one? Certainly it is. When Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, he didn't stop at just old men and young men and boys. That was for all the church. And so the point is that, yes, these distinctions are here. They're important. We'll talk a little about them. But... All these apply to all the faithful in the body of Christ, young, old, men, women, boys, or girls. So, if that's all true, and it is, then why did John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, say what he did and the way he did? Well, because God wanted us to recognize that there are role distinctions in the church. 
Men are the pastors, the ruling elders, the deacons in the body of Christ. And their role distinctions in the home. They talk about sovereignty. We were just talking about that in our Sunday school, our Christian education up here this morning. There are. And we rejoice in this. We like this. We celebrate this truth. No matter how much the world hates it and goes nuclear and crazy about it, it's true. And we're happy about it. And we look up to those people who have been placed in shepherding positions over us, whether those are fathers, mothers, husbands, pastors, elders, deacons, whatever it may be. But there's what can beat being completely justified in Jesus Christ's blood, having all our sins forgiven, nothing. Look at that verse again. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So the sweet message is God has for his church family. First, you're completely justified in Christ. Next, you are victoriously related to the eternal one. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, in this verse 13, John addresses three more relatives in the church family of God. The first one is fathers, who, by God's grace in Christ alone, know the sovereign deity, the Holy Trinity, who has always existed from before the creation of the world. He's always been the absolutely necessary, uncreated being who creates everything that is, that is contingent or created being. The next member of the family are the young men, quote-unquote, who by God's grace in Jesus alone have, quote, overcome the evil one. Well, this means that in this world, in this life, and in their Christian church lives, these people have joined with their master, their savior, Jesus Christ, in crushing the old snake's head under their heel as Jesus did on his resurrection from the dead when he crushed Satan's head and fulfilled the gospel promise of Genesis 3.15 that he would do so. Yes, Satan struck his heel, but Christ crushed his head, and now the young men, quote-unquote, are doing the same thing in this world today, in this life, in this church, in these days. Now, it's an amazing thing, a great promise. And the final kin that are spoken about in 2 in verse 13 are the children, quote-unquote. Now, this Greek word that John uses is the one we associate with the word pediatrics. But I think John's use of this word rather than the different one, techna, employed in verse 12 for little children, is really more stylistic than anything else. God's children of his church family know their father, and that is a good and blessed fact. And why does John keep saying that he writes to these various church family members? You know, it's it's interesting. This isn't the first time or even the second time. It's at least the third time in this epistle so far that he explains why he wrote it. And so he comes out and keeps saying, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I write to you, I write to you, I write to you. That's a lot of writing and a lot of reason for it. Why does he do that? Well, could it be? 
to simply encourage those Christians in their particular places and roles in the church. I think that makes sense. Never forget, dear saints, that the Holy Spirit writes the name of Jesus Christ and his gospel of his grace on every one of your hearts in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 had promised that, and that's what he does. He writes it on our hearts. All of us who are in Christ and his faithful church, by God's sovereign regenerative power, have that done for us. And we enjoy that mercy via our God-given faith in the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's elect church. The sweet messages God has for his church family. First, you are completely justified in Christ. And we could stop right there. You can't get any higher or better than that. That was applied to little children's. Next, you are victoriously related to the Eternal One, because you know Him, He knows you. And finally, you are humbly triumphant in Christ, verse 14. Excuse me. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, in this last verse, 13, the Apostle only adds two new items The fact that the young men are strong and that they have the word of God, quote-unquote, abiding in them. So verse 14a is an exact replication of verse 13. So Apostle John obviously wanted to drive that point home about the fathers knowing him who was from the beginning. He says the exact same thing. And the point I would like to emphasize here, though, is the conquering nature of the life of the church family of God that we get to experience here on earth in Christ as his church. This is all demonstrated in the words knowledge, the strength, the power of the word of God, and the indomitable victory that we true Christian churchmen have today, even over the devil himself today having crushed his head with Christ. It's as if the Holy Spirit, through God's servant, the Apostle John, is saying, nothing can conquer you, can beat you, can defeat you in me. Nothing can. Now, does this mean we won't sin, fail, come up short, be weak? Of course not. We call that sin. But even those things only get turned for our good, because all things work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. So even when we do fail and come up short and we learn and we grow and we become stronger, we do make progress. And what is life about but to become conformed to the image of Jesus? That's the goal of the Christian church life. Nothing can conquer you, God would say, because you belong to me through Christ Jesus and you are my priceless church family. I am related to you. For all of this grace and marvel and wonder, As the body of Christ, let us be thankful and praise-filled. God addresses the members of his church family with fatherly love. He gives us some sweet messages. And finally, in more application, let us comprehend why the whole church needs to hear tender words from God. Now, granted, not every text of Holy Scripture is as warm and cuddly as this one is in 1 John 2, as I mentioned earlier. But maybe our Heavenly Father included it because he could not help himself, speaking humanly, 
from showering his kind benevolence on us, the children of his grace, the apple of his eye, and the prize in Jesus of his heart. And therefore, with humility, grace, gratitude, and wonder, let us remind ourselves of why the whole church needs to hear tender words from God. Now remember, in preaching, we preach the whole counsel of God, don't we? Sometimes I have to preach texts that are pretty difficult, pretty convicting. You know, a faithful pastor has to do that, has to tell the truth all the time, to buck the trends of the world, not to love the world, as we're going to be told next week, Lord willing, to constantly tell the truth no matter what the consequences are, doesn't matter, whatever they are. But isn't it sweet that every once in a while you get a text like this? Why the whole church needs to hear tender words from God first, because we absolutely must know that we are the special objects of our Father's love. You, dear and faithful churchmen, women, boys and girls, realize that God puts a huge premium on your knowing that he loves you perfectly and infinitely and beyond degree that you could ever imagine. It's important that the church knows that. You'll never love God unless you know he loves you. You won't obey him either. You won't, you won't be a faithful churchman. You won't be a true Christian. You won't do anything right unless you know that God loves you. Now, the world, especially the religious world, I might even say the evangelical world, cheapens the grace, love, and mercy of God by unwisely and falsely, indiscriminately telling all people everywhere that God loves them. How many times have we turned on Christian radio or TV, if you want to call it that, and the guy or the woman or whoever it is is saying, God loves you! That is a very irresponsible thing to do. God has called his church ministers to address the real church. The Bible isn't, in this sense, all the epistles, they're written to churches. They aren't written to just anybody. No sermon in the Bible ever starts out with somebody being so stupid as to say God loves you. Never. No, we have to start with the truth of sin, death, hell, damnation, rebellion, hatred for God, all those things. It is extremely dangerous and it carries horrible consequences when people say to people that God loves them. Now, intelligent people, thoughtful people just laugh at that and say, that's ridiculous. They know their own heart well enough to know that God can't love that. And they're right. I give them credit. They have more sense than the speaker, whoever it is. But one of the real dangers here when people do that is that some people might believe it. Right? God loves me, and therefore I can do whatever I want, no consequences. It doesn't matter. He loves me no matter what. Right? God loves me unconditionally. All that is totally false. That's not true. The truth is that God does have special objects of his best and covenantal love. And every single one of those human beings are elect and redeemed members of his holy church. 
And he does not have anybody else in this category. No one else in this category. Now, does that mean there aren't elect people out there that aren't redeemed yet? Yes, it does mean that they are there, but they will get redeemed in time and space because they are elect unto grace and glory. They will. Our responsibility when we preach the gospel is to tell people that God is love. That's extremely important. We can do that, but we also have to tell them that God is holy, righteous, just, and good, and true. And we have to let them know that God's justice and holiness is so absolute that because of sin, the only means of propitiating or satisfying the sin, the offense against God, is the death of his, God's own natural son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who represents elect sinners unto glory and grace. That's the gospel they need to hear. Yes, God is love. God is love. God's an ocean of love. God's love is beyond anything we can imagine. God is love. But we need to know what that means. And if you are truly in Christ, you're a baptized member of the church and you're here because you want to be here. You didn't come kicking or screaming in your heart. You love God. He forgave your sins. You, you are growing. You're not sure where you are. You're all over the map. The people are mature or immature. But you know that God's done a great work in you. You need to know that you're the special object of God's love. All of us who are regenerate in Christ are the adopted children of God. You understand that? God has one natural child, son, I should say, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who became incarnate 2,000 years ago. Son of God existed with the Father and the Holy Trinity from all eternity past. He is the natural child, and we are the adopted children. In our estate as God's adopted children of his family, his church, and by the way, adoption's a great thing, isn't it? Are not adopted children chosen children? Yes, they are. And that great advantage is of being categorically and perfectly and absolutely and unconditionally now in Christ Jesus loved by the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're considering why the whole church needs to hear tender words from God, because we absolutely must know that we are the special objects of our Father's love, so that we will persevere in Christ down here. And this is because we possess virtually no power to be sustained in ourselves. Perseverance is an absolute miraculous grace. When somebody comes and joins the church and gives vows and they keep them, that is a miracle of the first magnitude. Perseverance in Christ and the true church is the gift of God's grace to us. And all who lack this grace, without exception, end up falling away from the faithful church where the gospel is preached. Not to synagogues of Satan or feel-good places or religious camps or, you know, rah-rah, cheery nonsense. But true churches, they must fall away. Even as John says in this very chapter 2 of 1 John at verse 19a, they will go out from us. They have to because they can't take it. Perseverance is a grace. 
But why, from our point of view, do we persevere? Because we're no better than them. We're no better than anybody. We're just in ourselves vile, corrupt, wicked, God-hating sinners. Why do we persevere and not give up? Well, because the indwelling Holy Spirit, confirming the baptisms of our covenant membership, has communicated to us in the deepest levels of our heart, subjectively but also objectively in the holy book of the scripture, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit really does love us. And as a result of that, we love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each other. The fuel of this love is saving faith in Christ, and the result is our willing and happy compliance to all that our Father asks us to do. Now, do we always do it? No. We fail sometimes, and that's called sin. But in a good family, there's correction and discipline, and every good church has that too. But our faith in Jesus overcomes even our sin. And Christ's blood cleanses away all of our sin. You should leave this service today so joyful, knowing that all your sins are cleansed away and that God the Father really loves you if you are in Christ Jesus and faithful in his church. Beloved, letters to the church family are love letters of the first magnitude. Let us be thankful to God for all of his letters to the church family. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that. It's a glorious thing to be in the family of God. Little children, fathers, young men, children, young women, women, all of us, we're in this together. One great family. We all have access to the Father. We all have access to the church and her shepherds. We all have access to the means of grace. We all have access to everything good in Jesus Christ. We thank you that... You've done a great work in us. Thanks for this tender section, Lord. We know that it's kind of special, and we do appreciate it. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.